Welcome to The Struggle is Real, a show for 20-somethings that are trying to figure out adulting. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Each episode, we focus on solving a problem that we will face throughout this defining decade that wasn't covered in the classroom. This could include topics about our career, health, relationships, and money. Let's get into it. Imagine if you had two years to travel the globe in order to better understand happiness. Where would you go? I'm assuming the Nordic countries, who I hear always rank high on the World Happiness Report, potentially Australia and New Zealand, they seem to be happy down there. What about places that aren't known for happiness, but more so the opposite? I feel like it'd be important to understand that perspective. Well, that's exactly what today's guest did. Joining me on the podcast is Dr. Ali Benazir, who is an author, speaker, and clinical hypnotherapist. But if you asked Ali today, his primary title would be happiness engineer. During this episode, we are going to dive into happiness, particularly why it isn't something that you're trying to find, but instead engineer into your life. This is a great conversation to tune into if you've been looking for practical ways to feel more fulfilled. Dr. Ali shares many prescriptive methods that you could act upon today. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the three-time TEDx speaker, Harvard alum, and of course, happiness engineer, Dr. Ali Benazir. Ali, how are you doing, man? Great. Nice to be here. Yeah, I'm excited for you to be here as well. We are going to be talking about happiness. And the first title in your email signature is happiness engineer. I'm interested um, to start things off. Why do you use the, the, the verbiage happiness engineering as compared to happiness investigator or something like that? It's assuming that we have to create or engineer happiness. Fantastic question. So glad you asked that, Justin. So the whole reason why I got into happiness was because I was around so many people who seemed to have all the trappings required for happiness, but weren't necessarily all that happy. They were nominally successful. They had jobs that were well-paying. They had great titles. They had relationships. They had kids. Uh, they had stuff. And living in places like San Francisco and Boston and Los Angeles, being around all these affluent, successful people, you think that, oh, they'd also be happy. But that's not what I observed. So I'm like, hmm, what is going on here? Why is there this disjunction between having everything and yet not being all that happy? And for the first few years that I was studying this, uh, I was a bit judgy about the whole thing. I'm like, what is wrong with you people? You have everything, but you're still miserable. But as I got deeper into my research, I realized that this is actually a glitch that's hardwired into the brain because our brains are not designed for us to thrive. They are there for us to survive. So the brain will do anything it can just to ensure your survival because that's how evolution works. You survive, you create babies and the babies perpetuate your genome and it keeps going like that. Uh, so as a result, our brains aren't really concerned about our happiness at all. And happiness needs to be something that we design into our lives. You have to engineer it into your life because if you just leave it to the default settings, it's just not gonna work. You're not gonna be all that happy. So I call it happiness engineering instead of happiness design just because, I don't know, happiness engineering sounds a lot more letters. Uh, 
but it's also about really uh, creating structures. That's why I call it happiness engineering, because you want to channel yourself. You want to constrain yourself into these structures that actually predispose you to greater happiness, as opposed to going off and doing all the things that your survival brain wants you to do that don't necessarily make you happy. For example, let me simple one. Uh, your brain is designed to maximize your intake of calories whenever they're available. Because for the first 3 million years of hominin evolution, calories were scarce. And that's still a problem with any other animal on Earth. So when you found a source of calories, like say honey or fruit, you just gorged, right? So now you got that same brain design, same body design, and you see a cheesecake. Now, if you just go with that survival brain, it's going to go eat the whole cheesecake. And then you will feel sick and miserable and probably get fat in the long run. So that's why we need these guardrails uh, such that we can channel our lives towards this thing called actual thriving and fulfillment. And by happiness, I do mean long-term thriving. So people say, oh, happiness, that's kind of frivolous, just dancing and prancing through the fields. But no, what we're talking about is eudaimonia. We're talking about diachronic happiness. We're talking about the notion of long-term contentment, well-being, thriving, basically all the good stuff that I'm hoping is not objectionable because look, if you don't want to feel good, you don't want to thrive, that's totally cool. This talk is probably not for you, but that's what we're interested in here. Yeah. Um, and, it, and I think a lot of people misconceive the fact that we are designed for survival and not happiness. I think most people assume that we're oriented towards happiness um, and that our brain is wired that way. So I was really fascinated whenever I heard you speak on that um, and all the things that we're actually fighting against um, that, that you know, might impede us from getting happiness. And you said research, you legit have done a lot of research. I think you spent like two years traveling across um, the globe to see these different cultures or groups of people that are, um, are, are supposed to have an excess of happiness. What did you learn from that experience? Yeah, I went to a bunch of different places. So went to Bali for a spell. I was in uh, Finland. I was in Helsinki for a few months and uh, Finland ranks perennially at the top of the world happiness rankings. So I'm like, what's going on here? You got this dinky little country up by the North Pole and it's dark nine months out of 12 and it's freezing cold and the income's kind of okay, not great. And if you've met any Finns, they're not necessarily smiley people. So what's going on here? And uh, went to other places too, like, uh, you know, I was in Buenos Aires and also went to places that were unhappiness hotspots, places like Kiev in the Ukraine. And I'm like, all right, what's going on there? And so much of it has to do uh, with mindset and community. Um, so places like Denmark, right? So Denmark is also another one of the places that has super high happiness rankings. And what their secret is is pretty simple. They have a lot of affiliative groups that they're part of. Everybody's part of like three or four different groups are always doing stuff. Uh, some families live in group houses. And so there is this deep feeling of belonging that definitely helps. And uh, the secret in Finland, a big part of it is 
a part of just Nordic culture, which is that you just don't show off. It's not done. So in the other Nord in the in the Scandinavian Nordic countries, uh, it's called uh, Jantelagen or Jantelowen or the law of Janta. And the idea is that there's this underlying programming that says, hey, look, you're not that special, which isn't necessarily all that productive. I don't, I don't agree with 100%. But at the same time, there's ethos of equality. You go to you go to Helsinki and the nicest car on the road is a cab. The brand new Mercedes is almost always a cab. Everybody else who can afford a Mercedes is driving a Honda because you just don't show off. It's just not done. Uh, and they also have certain basic aspects uh, of life uh, needs just met. So they pay higher taxes, but in return, like all of their, uh, they have created the grave healthcare, they have created the grave education. So that was a part of it too. Uh, that's harder to duplicate in a country of say 320 million people where people don't believe in universal healthcare. Uh, but the mindset is definitely something that can be emulated here. And the whole idea of contentment people in finland they're just cool with what they have and they have their country cabin they go there they have their sauna they have their friends they hang out and it's good enough um and in, in denmark they have something where they say well it could be worse so Dane, danes are also not super duper smiley people but they're always content with what there is and they're like oh this, whatever we have, it could be worse. So this notion of a deep undercurrent of gratitude. Um, so, and in Bali, the big thing that I noticed there was just the notion of community. So there, every household is three generations, almost everyone that I saw. So you got the kids, you got the parents and you got the grandparents and they all live there together. And they're all around people all the time. You never saw a Balinese person alone. Whereas in the United States, you got, I don't know, more than a third of the population, they live alone. And it's just not a very affiliative culture and friendship is on the wane. Uh, I just read that 30% of millennials don't even have one best friend that they can talk to. There's this fantastic book about the loneliness epidemic, epidemic in the United States uh, by Vivek Murthy, the former and happy to say current Surgeon General of the United States, Vivek Murthy, and it's fantastic, but it also chronicles uh, all the issues that we have and, and all the solutions that we could have for creating greater community. So uh, a lot of these places, they got community right, uh, they got contentment right, and the places that got it wrong, uh, like say Ukraine, uh, a big issue there was lack of trust. So anytime I hop into a cab, uh, or, a new, or some kind of shared ride, I ask them, what's on your mind? Um, what's your biggest issue these days? And unanimously, they would say corruption. So they had trust issues everywhere, all the time. And if you don't have that basic trust, that fabric of community falls apart. And all this feeds back into that uh, our happiness being primarily determined by uh, the robustness of our relationships. That's why the first pillar of the five pillars of human thriving is robust relationships. And evolutionarily, we're designed to cooperate. That's how this wimpy little creature with no fangs or claws or fur became the dominant species on the planet because we cooperate with each other and we got shit done. So 
when we cooperate, evolution says this is good. It produces the happy juices. And so community, cooperation, hanging out with other people, that is what is the centerpiece of our overall uh, health, wellness, happiness. And that's why this pandemic thing has been so hard on people. They're like, well, my life isn't necessarily bad, but I feel all this malaise. Hey, that is totally normal. We are you social creatures. So you social creatures are uh, like ants and termites and naked mole rats. We're in this exalted company of being these creatures that just thrive based on extensive cooperation. So uh, that's, that's what I noticed. I noticed all the science being corroborated in these societies, in the communities, uh, as people were, li were living their lives. Yeah, and, and I want to get to your five pillars of human thriving, but I want to poke you a little bit more on what you were just speaking about since you brought up the U.S. And yeah. how much of what you noticed in the solutions that could be presented to itself are a bit of a paradox of what the United States stands for. So for example, contentment, um, there's not a ton of con contentment in the United States, which is why we breed, or at least I think we breed a lot of great entrepreneurs. Um, so if we pulled back on some of that lack of contentment um, to move towards more of a uh, more con contentment, is that a good or a bad thing for the United States? Same thing with community too. Um, it's easy to be, uh, it's easy to build community when everybody looks and feels and, and is the same. Whereas in the United States, we have an appreciation for diversity and having a lot of different um, cultures represented here. You're absolutely right. And that, that touches upon a whole body of research there's this fantastic book I'm reading right now, um, and it's called The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Particularly Prosperous and Psychologically Peculiar. And weird meaning Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And the idea is that, hey, this weird thing is weird. Most of the world isn't this way. And one of the topics that he discusses extensive by the way this is a very difficult book to get through it's like 700 pages but the ideas are amazing so it's the explanatory power of this book is astonishing uh, but i'll just give you a little piece of it which is that uh, if you look at the different countries and communities in the world they break down based on whether they're more community oriented or more individualistic so and if you are more individualistic, then you can predict certain things about those societies. And the reason why these Western educated industrialized um, countries became very rich is partially because of this individualist culture. And as a, and all of it feeds into, I mean, the, the stuff that they studied and came up with is kind of astonishing. Uh, it has to do with the legitimacy of cousin marriage, for example. In countries where cousin marriage is legitimate, you have a much more communitarian orientation. It's more collectivist. And as a result, people only do business with their family and there's no trust outside of the family. And so you get corruption and you don't get a whole lot of economic thriving. Whereas you come to a country that's individualistic, you have people who have decided to venture outside of their family and they've developed this ethos of trusting total strangers. So you come to the US and you have these things called contracts, which are valid. You have courts that kind of work. And so you get all the best entrepreneurs in the world, they come here because 
things work and you have this individualist culture. And as a result, people thrive individually and they have ambition and that's what they wanna do. So they're almost mutually exclusive. And in my studies of Eastern wisdom, which I'm a big fan of, there's always this conflict between ambition and contentment. It's like, okay, so everything is perfect in the world as it is. Well, does that mean I just lie down in a hammock all day long and don't do anything? Or do I make myself useful to the planet somehow? So I, my happy medium uh, with that is that, look, we've all been given some kind of gift or maybe even multiple gifts. And if we're here on earth, we're here to give that gift to the world. So you can do that in a way that also reflects contentment and makes you happy without gritting your teeth and going, ah, I suck, I must do better. Uh, while you're giving your gift, you can enjoy the process and do it in a way that's not about your ego or ambition, but rather an act of service. And that act of service goes back to the whole pro-sociality being the thing that actually makes us happy in the long run. So it all kind of ties together. Hmm. So let's get into your five pillars of human thriving, because we got a lot here and a lot that I want to cover. So your five pillars, you mentioned the first one, robust relationships. Um, the second one being meaningful work. Third, sound sleep. Fourth, mental fitness. And fifth, physical fitness. I'm curious, which of these five has come the most easy to you? And which, which one has been the most challenging? Yeah, I would say number one is the most challenging simply because the other four, I can figure out on my own. I can make those happen. But the first one requires cooperation from so-called friends. And I gotta tell you, it's been a rough year, decade for friendship. So uh, I used to call all of my friends on their birthdays and I did this for years. But then after a while, I start to realize that people weren't actually picking up on their birthdays from me, who's known them for, I don't know, a decade or two. So. Finally, you know, and that I started keeping records of that. And initially it was like maybe 80% of people would pick up. And then it was like 50%. Eventually it became like 10%. I stopped doing it. And so something is happening here. And, you know, I had a close friend who lives 20 minutes away. I saw him three times in the last year. Not because we didn't have time, but because dude doesn't pick up when I call. He doesn't respond when I text him. Um, in, in the past uh, 10 days, five people called uh, or wrote to ask to do some kind of collaboration. I responded and they failed to follow up. Something very strange is going on here. Um, so whether you call it flakiness or whether you call a deprioritization, but this is an actual trend and a lot of people are experiencing it. And you know, you read that book together by Vivek Murthy, or this book I'm reading right now by John Levy. It just came out. It's called You're Invited. Uh, it's chronicling all these things. And so community building, we need to become the hub and we need to became, become very deliberate about that. And, and just to make this friendship and connection thing a priority. Otherwise, you know, you can have all the success in the world, but if you're doing it alone, where's that going to get you? So, so yeah, the most challenging one by far is that number one, robust relationships, just because there's only so much I can do. Whereas when it comes to meaningful work, well, I can pick meaningful work. When it comes to sleep, I can tune up my sleep. I can go get a sleep study. I can work on my sleep hygiene. I can sleep better. 
mental fitness, I can meditate in the morning. Nobody can stop me from doing that except for me. And physical fitness, same thing. So yeah, definitely the first one. Yeah, I would agree. I the it, it, at least the last three are much more prescriptive where there can be rules you can put in place and once you get those habits set um it's got to correct itself but you're right the the first one is a collaborative process which makes it so challenging and i love that whenever i reached out to you and pitched you to be on the podcast you just said sounds interesting here's my phone number call me <laughs> and i was like okay um and i love it after doing some research on you too i i ran into an article um i think it was like millennials guide to phone use and in there yeah. you, you you went on this rant about just being like at minimum the one day of the year you need to pick up your phone is on your birthday because people just want to call you and say happy birthday <laughs> and it's it is you're right it is uh an epidemic that this whole this whole phone and the texting piece has gotten us actually further away from the human connection piece to it um, I love when people are comfortable picking up the phone and having conversation because A, you can get more done more quickly and B, um, I don't know, I, I there's very rarely I leave a conversation or hang up on the phone without feeling like I was more connected to that person um, prior to Yeah, I mean, this is what we're designed to do and there's a richness in face-to-face uh, -face communication that you simply don't get via text. And I always say, uh, texting is how I lose friends. Talking is how I make friends. Mm. I think I'm also on record uh, for saying that uh, the best way to get rid of a millennial who wants something from you is to tell them, call me. Yeah, uh, didn't work with you, Justin, but hey, uh, I tried. <laughs> I was about to say, you tweeted that like a month and a half ago or something. I was like, I yeah. love that. <laughs> I almost retweeted it. And I was like, I, I can't shame my own fellow cohort of people, <laughs> but I need to. Um, so let's get into robust relationships. I look at this as two parts, um, your intimate relationships, um, your, your romantic relationships, and then your platonic relationships. Let's start with mm. romantic relationships. And you're in one of two phases, either you're in a partnership currently um, and working towards yeah. that robust relationship, or you're seeking that. I don't know very many people that yeah aren't necessarily seeking that. I know some people that might be in relationships that um, aren't necessarily best for them. So let's actually start there. Why do you think good people get involved and stay in bad relationships? Yeah, great question. And once again, for many years, I was super judgy about this. Like, what is wrong with you? You're a smart person. Why are you making such bad decisions? But once again, it's that tricky survival brain. And when it comes to relationships and connection, it's once again, all about evolution and survival. So your brain just says, oh, that person looks fertile, healthy, uh, potential genetic material that can combine with yours and make babies, go for it. <laughs> and that's pretty much the level of discrimination that your brain has. So you see the bright, shiny object and you move towards it. And your brain has no regard for whether this bright, shiny object is actually good for you, whether it's a good fit for you. And I can tell from firsthand experience, the number of bright, shiny objects that I've been drawn to. And I thought, yes, this one is the answer. And it really wasn't because, or it was the answer to some other question that I wasn't asking. So you want to be very deliberate about this. In fact, I read recently somewhere that the Buddhists say, Anytime you meet someone and you have those blood butterflies in your stomach, you get all excited and your adrenaline goes up, that's your sign to walk away because the right person, the person who's a good fit for you, who's actually going to be the catalyst to your growth as a human being, 
is going to be the one who creates this feeling of calm and expansiveness and just equanimity and go, oh, I have arrived home. Um, so yeah, that's usually what happens. People are attracted to certain types and they will go their entire lives being attracted to those types and gravitating towards them. And, you know, I'm as guilty as anybody. And it takes a lot of discipline to go, wow, I'm feeling all this excitement in my body. And that doesn't actually mean anything yet until I get to know this person better and find out if they're good for me. And my, my simple rubric for finding out if somebody's good for you is to notice the kind of person you become in their presence. Is this person a catalyst to your becoming your better self or a worse version of yourself? So I've hung out with people who are tremendously attractive and alluring. And, and when I'm in their presence, I feel snarkier. I feel like a meaner version of me. I feel less generous and I kind of shrink down. I'm afraid of saying certain things. And yet, because she's so cute, I'm like, yeah, this is good. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are people who are maybe not as cute, but I feel so much more expansive and, and humorous and generous. And I'm like, oh, wow, this person brought out a better version of me. So in the end, that's what you want out of a relationship. And the person who's going to be that catalyst to your greatness may not come in the packaging that you expect, which is partially why all these swipey dating apps are so terrible because they just scrunch down the, the wholeness of a person, all this data down to one flat photo that's probably faked or doctored anyway. Um, and people are making the biggest decision of their lives. Who are you going to partner with based on that incredibly deficient and sometimes downright faulty information? Yeah. Um, the dating apps almost make it seem like a commodity. It's like, uh, the same yeah. way I order food is how I select who I'm going to go out on my next date with, which yeah. <laughs> is probably not so romantic, <laughs> <laughs> which is not how it should be. Um, and, and that's crazy. So what is, um, you in, you wrote this phenomenal book for anyone who is single. Um, you, you wrote this book, uh, the Tao of dating specifically for smart women, but I read the book. I'm in a relationship right now. I got a ton from it. Um, but wow. for the people that are looking actively looking for a partner, um, you mentioned this model of this, uh, three C's for the optimal venue. Can we quickly go over that so that when people are thinking about where should I be spending my time, um, looking for a new partner, they can think about these three C's. Totally. Yeah. It's, as things are opening back up and people are able to wander out into the open again, uh, get vaccinated people makes life a lot easier. Uh, you want to base. So basically you're going to find the kind of fish depending on where you're fishing, right? So you want to set up the situation so that you're fishing in the right spot. And First, the first C is simple. It's conversation friendliness. It's like, can you be heard? Can you hear the other person? Because as far as I'm concerned, the purpose of a date is to gather accurate information on the suitability of somebody else as a potential partner. That's what you're doing. It's not supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be about ego. It's supposed to be like, can I get accurate, useful information here to make a good judgment? 
And if it's loud and there's a band in the background and there's people yelling and screaming around you and you're in a sports bar, suboptimal, not going to work, right? Clubs are like the worst place you can possibly meet a human being because what you're shouting into each other's ears, this is not how humans were designed uh, to communicate. Um, but somewhere nice and quiet, you know, coffee, uh, being in a cafe or going on a hike, conversation friendly, it's good. Which brings us to uh, number two, which is the sense of community. So is this a place that has some kind of commonality for the two of you? So uh, if you're at a supermarket, great, you both like to eat, but that's, you know, that's seven and a half billion people also like to eat. But if you're both at this conference for Antarctic penguins, oh my God, you are both scientists probably, and you're into Antarctic penguins, that's a whole lot you already have in common. So when you go to a place that has some kind of sense of community, whether that's night school, whether that's a conference, whether that's a yoga class you both attend, boom, suddenly you have instant connection already made. And speaking of the classes, the third one is continuity. So the way courtship has worked in the, over the past uh, 300,000 years of, of humans evolving, uh, you had repeated contact with somebody. You were in the same tribe and tribes were like far away from each other. So you were around these people all the time. You had a really good sense of who these people were because of continued, repeated, casual contact. So the more you can engineer that in your life, the more you can figure out whether somebody is actually a good match for you or whether just showing up as the audition version of themselves, that, hey, look at me, I'm so cool, right? You want the real version. So you want that continuity. Uh, if you have a night school class where you show up over and over again, you get to see them over time. Uh, same yoga class, same, I don't know, whatever it else is that you could be doing where you have repeated casual contact, work, school. This is why so many people hook up uh, at work, people, uh, find connections at school because you have this repeated contact over time. That's not about a job interview or an audition. It's just people being who they are. So that combination of conversation, friendliness, community, and continuity will yield you the best information regarding whether this person is going to be suitable as a partner or not. Mm. And finding that venue is important, but I feel like the crux of finding a date or getting a date is getting the courage to initiate the conversation. And I know you, um, you kicked off your, your dating advice um, career. I don't really know what to call it, but by seeing these smart Harvard students in this like perfect prime opportunity of other young, bright, um, uh, uh, opposite sex, inter you know, daily interaction, they got the community there. Uh, it's conversation friendly, but I feel like the crux was getting the courage to go and initiate that conversation. So what advice and they're do you- they're all single by definition. <laughs> they don't even think about it, right? It's, it's crazy. It's, it's really crazy. Um, but what do, you, what do you tell people that don't have the courage to go and strike up that first conversation? Yeah, well, uh, there are two settings. One is the male setting and the female setting. So the male setting, uh, the female setting is simple. For the most part, you just sit there and be pretty and guys will talk to you, right? However, you are also not a potted plant. And especially if you're a strong, smart woman, 
this is your world. You get to run it. You don't just sit there and wait for stuff to happen to you. You want to talk to a guy? You go talk to him. You have my full permission. And I got to tell you, nice, smart, interesting guys, they love it when women come and talk to them first because yeah. that just means that you have excellent taste in men. So fantastic, <laughs> right? And if the guy's not into it, that means he probably doesn't, he probably doesn't like himself all that much. Uh, so ladies, feel free to take initiative, especially these days when guys are terrified of the whole Me Too thing. They don't want to offend a true gentleman, you know, probably doesn't want to invade your space, wants to be considerate. So you have so much power these days to make stuff happen. Just go up and say hi. And that's all I really have to do. Once you say hi, the guy knows. He's like, wait a sec. No woman has said hi to me in the past three fiscal quarters. It's <laughs> on. <laughs> right. And, and they will, they, if they have any kind of uh, courage at all, they'll pick up that ball and run with it. As for the men, for the men, it's really simple. So I scrunched down the Dow dating for women into three words, be the light. I scrunched down the Dow dating for men into one word, lead, lead. Look, this is your job. Your job is to make shit happen, okay? So your job is to go up and take the risk and say hi, make conversation, be charming, ask for her number, ask her out, make the first date happen, make it an interesting first date, ask her out again. If it goes well, eventually make things happen more, uh, advance things in physical intimacy, every step of the way you get to have the initiative people say oh i have to do this oh it's such a burden no no you don't have to you get to because the alternative is that the ladies they're sitting there waiting for stuff to happen of course not the ladies who are listening to this because i just told them to go and make stuff happen but for the most part if you're a guy you get to be the architect of your life how fun is that how cool is that and once you go into that mindset of i get to do this I get to brighten somebody else's day. And think of it as you're doing the world a favor because if you don't do it, nothing's gonna happen and the entire human race will go extinct. So it is on you, brother, to go up to her and say hi, compliment her on her outfit or I don't know, the great talk she gave, whatever it is, but get the ball rolling. And you know, there's all kinds of conversational gambits, but really it's all about, Go up and say hi, express appreciation, acknowledge people's existence, and that's already more than 97% of the people are doing out there. And just re recognize that if you are the one who's willing to do that, you have a huge advantage because so many other people are still cowering in fear. Mm. Totally agree. Let's shift back to the people who aren't single, um, making their relationship robust. You have this concept of novelty night. Can you explain this? Absolutely. So my top of the line piece of advice for people who are in a relationship is to do stuff to keep the relationship from going stale or maybe to de-stale-arise it. Uh, we just made a bit of a word there. <laughs> Love but it. If, you, if, you're in, if you've encountered any of the work of Esther Peril, who's a fantastic therapist and very well known by now. Uh, she wrote this book called Mating in Captivity. And uh, she's talked to thousands of couples. And the number one issue in long-term relationships is that people start getting used to each other, which is a totally normal, hardwired 
feature of the human brain. We adapt both to good stuff and to bad stuff. So this creature who is so exotic and interesting and exciting and you worked so hard to get him or her into your life now becomes about as interesting as an old shoe. And I don't think that's necessarily the formula for happiness. So what can we do about that? Well, let's do a little brain hack here. So novelty night is when you designate one night of the week to do something new together. And it's not just a date night, it's specifically a novelty night. You do something new because when you engage in a novel activity, your brain starts just producing crazy amounts of dopamine and also sprouting new nerve endings. And so what that does is it recontextualizes your relationship. Your brain's like, oh, this person must be also new. It basically sits the, hits a kind of a reset button on the relationship because now you're doing this new thing with your partner your brain's enlivening up and boom, it feels great. And it, this is something that requires effort. So it's like working out. You can't just say, well, you know, I worked out a couple of months ago. I think I'm good for the year. That's not how it works. So keeping a relationship healthy is just like keeping a body healthy. So you do this novelty night and you make a list of novel things you want to do. I'm a big fan of the category list. So for example, cooking, right? Just pick up a cookbook and go through the cookbook or do different cuisines or go take a cooking class together, go take an art class together, different subject every time, go on a different hike. In Los Angeles, there are hundreds of hikes you can go on. So, or, you know, if you want to be adventurous and add this to your life, pick up the Kama Sutra and say, we're going to do position 68 today. Um, and so, there's all kinds of stuff you can do. Make up a list of novel things you can do together. Hard schedule it into your time and make it happen. And uh, get back to me with the results because it will change things. I mean, if the relationship was doomed already, all right, probably not going to help. But just to get out of that staleness because it's so easy to take somebody whom you love so dearly, but you become adapted to, uh, to filter that greatness out of your life. You want to bring that, uh, bring that back up online and feel it again and feel the gratitude. Yeah. Agreed. Um, I love the concept of novelty nights that, that was so genius. Um, puts a new spin on date night so that you're not continuously going to the same place to eat, getting the same food on Thursday night at this yeah. certain time. So let's yeah. pivot away and, from, and just, go ahead. Just, just elaborate on that. Um, you want to make the novelty night something active. So it's nice to go to a new restaurant, but that's just an act of consumption. What I want people to do is to actually do something new, learn something new together, because that's what gets your brain to sprout new neurons. That's what gives you the big dopamine boost. So if it's a choice between not doing anything at all and going to a new restaurant, all right, by all means, go for it. But whenever possible, cook the meal together, do something totally new together. That's cool. So let's pivot away from robust relationships, move into meaningful work. So when you say meaningful work, are you talking about your career or your job, like your livelihood? What falls into meaningful work? Great. Uh, so, so I like to tell the story, which may be apocryphal, of Sir Christopher Wren, the great architect of St. Paul's Cathedral, who sneaks onto the building site one day and asks a bricklayer, Oh, good. So what are you doing today? And the bricklayer kind of has a surly look on his face and he says, 
what does it look like I'm doing? I'm laying bricks, mate. And well, all right, geez, all right, fine. Walks the next guy and he says, good sir, what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm building a church. It's gonna be great. Fantastic. Third guy, he's laying bricks, but he looks, has this dreamy look in his eyes. And he says, sir, what are you doing? And he says, I am building a house of worship for generations of future people to come and to access their higher selves. So they're all doing the same thing, but the first guy had a job, second guy had a career, and third guy had a calling. So it is possible within whatever you're doing to have a different way of thinking about it, a different attitude about it. So there's this lady, Amy uh, Rezniewski, uh, from the Yale School of Management, she talks about job crafting. And that's what this is, which is within your job, how can you find the element of service and meaning such that you can have greater purpose in what you do? And so much of meaning comes down to service. So the first guy, he thought he was just laying bricks. But the third guy, he was like, wow, this is an incredible act of service, not just for me and for people who are living in London right now, but for generations of people to come. Uh, some science, some researchers talked to these janitors in a hospital who seemed particularly pleased with their work and like, this doesn't make sense. They're just cleaning stuff up. And they, so I asked him, why are you so happy? And he says, hey, we're here, part of the health team. It's so important for this place to be clean and healthy so people can come here and heal. And so they felt like they were part of this mission and therefore their jobs gave them greater meaning. So that's one way. If you can't switch your job right now and to do something more meaningful, you can do some job crafting within it. Ideally, though, I would want you to be engaged in something that's actually meaningful. So if you're a doctor or a nurse or a teacher, that's easy, right? But what if you're an investment banker and you just have this extractive job and you can't quit immediately after you hear this podcast and have this terrible crisis of conscience, like, oh no, I'm an extractive job, I'm a terrible person. But more seriously, what can we do for the vast majority of people who can't just pick up and leave their jobs uh, because they have uh, mouths to feed in their family? And you can actually add an element of public service to what you do. And the sweet spot for that is about 10 hours a month. So the max, that's the max dose. Below that, you're not getting the max dose. Beyond that, people burn out, but you can go and pick some kind of public service organization. I mean, there's like reading to kids. How easy is that? And you're making kids happy. You make them happy, you become happy. Or even more easily, you can mentor somebody within your own company. There's always going to be somebody who is junior to you. And this friend of mine, uh, Debbie Heiser, she has this thing called the Mentor Project. And there's so many great stories coming out of that. And so much of that, once again, feeds into the pro-sociality aspect of happiness. You're doing something pro-social, you're teaching somebody, you're making future generations more capable, and that strengthens the tribe. So, uh, so those are a few things you can do to uh, add more meaning to your work. Add an element of service, whether it's mentoring or some kind of public service, and also job crafting such that you recognize the element of service and meaning within what you're already doing. Interesting. Yeah. And underneath this one, the only thing I wrote down was the chicken and the egg problem. Do I need to find meaningful work or can I make work meaningful? And you went straight into that. I think you gave a lot of great suggestions and advice on that piece to it. Um, 
did you know this when so you had you started your career out at McKinsey as a consultant you had this enlightened moment um between that moment and quitting did you do some other things to start to create a more to create your work more meaningfully and I didn't know any of this stuff then and so you know that I, I tell people that that my time at McKinsey was when I looked like I was on top of the world, but I was actually at the very bottom. And I felt the worst I'd felt my entire life. And here's a job that has the title. It looks fancy. And finally, my immigrant mother can be somewhat proud of me, even after quitting medicine. And, you know, it's making six dig, not bad, right? Especially after being a grad student my entire life. It's like, oh my God, money, this is crazy. And I'm amongst interesting colleagues for sure. So there's a lot of positive things and the perks are good. The compensation is good, but the work in itself was deeply meaningless. And there I was creating this spreadsheet that was making these predictions, but I made it all up. And the predictions were, I mean, the, the, the model was itself totally bogus. I was just shifting numbers around. And in the end, nobody cared about the result because the result was foreordained. I was just doing this to justify the decision that the vice president had already made in this company. And later on, I found out that there was a lot of shady stuff happening and the company we're working for got fined to the tune of $760 million. So not only was it meaningless, it was also downright criminal. <laughs> so um, so I, I, I I've realized that I, I just can't keep on doing this, but at the same time, I found some friends who were doing meaningful things and they were creating books and eBooks and courses online. I was like, well, you know, I can create something at least as good as that. And if not, you know, better than this. So that's what I did. And I haven't looked back since because once I started doing that, I'm like, oh, wow, this actually helps people. And by the way, that's why something like this is so important to me to do or talking on on a pl another platform like Clubhouse or teaching classes because I get to see people have some kind of reaction to my work and uh, some kind of transformation, some kind of benefit. I'm hoping the people who listen to this will derive something useful and impl implement their lives and that adds meaning to my life. Uh, so yeah, I was completely naive about these things, but as a result of that misery, I went on a path of finding uh, anti-misery. So I'm going to uh, shove a transition in here and say that this third pillar, you probably didn't get a lot of at McKinsey. It, it, it sounded like you were like up till like 1130 working and whatnot. So sound sleep was definitely not a priority during that phase of your life. Um, why not just slide sleep into the physical fitness pillar? Like why, like, can you yeah. make an argument that this is so critical that it needs to stand by itself and have its own pillar? Absolutely. So I, my visual conception of sleep is that you've got this arch, you got this arch and you got the little keystone in the middle that holds the whole arch together, which is why sleep is number three out of five. It's the keystone, it's the middle piece because without it, everything falls apart. So it was only in recent years that I realized how important sleep was. And uh, the research is very clear. If your sleep is poor, you know, it affects your metabolic system, it affects your cognition, you become literally dumber. If you, if you short sleep for four days, you're as good as drunk. If you, if you do an all-nighter, like a lot of residents and interns do in hospitals, 
you're as good as drunk. And then those people are making life and death decisions uh, on the, uh, for, for sick people, which seems not entirely right. And it affects your musculoskeletal. So, so everything, sleep is, people, the research is, is interesting. Nobody still knows, nobody knows yet what sleep is good for. Uh, sleep is restorative, but restorative of what? Nobody's figured out. But we do know for sure that without it, you are screwed. So sleep hygiene is key. And, and my own personal journey was uh, via discovering that I actually had a, an issue with sleep. I was falling asleep behind the wheel of cars going 70 miles an hour while I was driving them. I don't recommend this. And it was like so drowsy that my, I, was, I was nodding off. I was hitting the little bumpy divider thing. And that's, I think it's designed for people like me. So it wakes us up. It's like, oh, so, so many times I was pulling over and going to, you know, some Denny's parking lot to sleep for like 10, 15 minutes, take a nap. So I, so I'd actually be sentient and get home alive. Uh, I finally got a sleep study and found out that I was waking up 253 times a night because I had, and still have, severe sleep apnea. So sleep apnea is the number one underdiagnosed chronic disease probably in the world, 24% of all men, 9% of all women, and it is deadly. I mean, you got 5,000 people dying every year because they fall asleep behind the wheel. And it also affects all other aspects of your life. And my entire life, I needed a crane to pull me out of bed in the morning. I was like, oh, and you know, for years, I mean, since 2005, I did not have an alarm. I, I, I was self-employed. I wake up whenever I woke up, but I was still exhausted. I, and I was groggy and nothing was working. And once I fixed the sleep apnea problem by getting this machine called a continuous positive airway pressure machine, which is a mask that forces air into your, into your airway and it keeps the airway open, doesn't let it collapse. So that's what sleep apnea is, right? Your airway collapses when you're lying down because of the lower pressure and the and the weight um, when you're in a dependent position. So this keeps the airway open. I'm actually breathing through the night. I'm getting to the deep sleep and the restorative sleep and I'm a new man and I do not fall asleep behind the wheel. I don't get drowsy. So if you have daytime drowsiness, if you, um, every time you watch a movie, you fall asleep. Every time you start reading a book, you fall asleep. If you happen to be overweight, and if somebody who knows you well tells you that you snore, you need to go get a sleep study because chances are very high that you have sleep apnea. So yeah, that and then just basic sleep hygiene of, of keeping the room super duper dark, use, use an eye mask, keep it a little cooler, like around 55 to 60 even, 60, 60, 60 to 65 is probably good. Uh, don't get too crazy with it. And no caffeine after 3 p.m. because caffeine has a half-life of six hours. So at nine, half of the caffeine you had at three is still in your system. So no caffeine after 3 p.m., no alcohol two hours before you go to bed. Uh, alcohol, people think, helps their sleep, but actually uh, kills the quality of your sleep. It's not going to be restorative sleep. Uh, and yeah, and use your bed only for sleeping and sex, because otherwise, if you take your computer and you work uh, in your bed, then you've, you're activated and that your brain is not cued to go into relax and calm down mode when you're in bed. Uh, so good sleep hygiene, get a sleep study and just make sleep sacrosanct, make it the number one priority, make it a thing that does not get violated. So many college kids, so many 
hard workers out there, they just feel like sleep is this infinite account that they can withdraw from. It doesn't work that way. You'd never make up for sleep. So just make sure you get the sleep, set it up so that you uh, go to bed at the exact same time every night. That's the most important part. Uh, ideally, both wake up and sleep times are the same, but the most important one is when you go to bed. And stay away from the screens like an hour before you go to bed or get one of these blue blocking orange glasses that make you look like Bono. Uh, so whatever it takes, just get into the sleep hygiene. Um, I'm happy to help if you have more questions. Uh, there's the best resource for all this is Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Fantastic yeah, book, has all the science in there. And it, it really is life-changing. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. And even if you can't go out and afford a sleep study, I think you gave a lot of really easy tactical things that you can try out over the next week between the temperature and the screens and the caffeine, the alcohol, a certain window of to go to sleep and to wake up. Um, those are easy things that I think people can start playing with and see how it affects their sleep and, and um, mood overall. So let's, let's, uh, let's go to, to mental fitness now. Um, I know from researching you, a lot of what you talk about in this area is meditation. Is that your primary, most prescriptive technique for mental fitness? Absolutely. In fact, the entire happiness engineering program was going to be about just this, just the mental fitness. And I realized, oh yeah, they also have bodies and lives and friends and things. So <laughs> that's why we have the five for those of happiness. But that said, I mean, this mental fitness thing is game changing. And the metaphor that I like to give people is to imagine that the world is strewn with shards of broken glass and sharp pebbles and just a lot of goop and, and heroin needles just all over the place, right? Which is actually not very different from what I experienced in San Francisco uh, for, for five years. Now imagine that you're only allowed to walk around barefoot we've got a problem, right? Because it's like, oh, you know, needle there, you know, sharp rock there, broken glass here. How do you even get around, right? Now somebody comes to you and says, hey, I've got these hiking boots. You can wear them, you've got these lug soles. You can walk on anything, anywhere, anytime. You're like, what, are you kidding me, really? You put on these shoes and it's true. Now, even though the world is strewn with broken shards of glass, you can get around just fine and it doesn't bother you. That's what meditation does. Mm. The world is always spinning out of control. There's always a million weird shit happening around you, right? But when you meditate, it's like you have these hiking boots for your mind. And even though stuff out there may be weird, you don't have to be bothered by it. You can kind of see it. You can even feel some of it. But you're one step back from what the event is and the feeling is. And you're able to see, oh, I am having this feeling. I am having this thought. I am not my thoughts. I am not my feelings. I am the person who is experiencing it. And it's like you have a TV screen upon which you can project Ted Lasso or Game of Thrones or whatever else you want to watch. But once you turn the TV off, once again, the screen is clear. And that is your consciousness. Your consciousness is like that TV screen. And... On it are projected thoughts, ideas. I mean, you look at a cloud, do you become a cloud? No. You think you're a failure. Are you a failure? No, it's just a thought. So the more you meditate, the more you develop this faculty 
uh, of witness consciousness, which some traditions call, which means you're able to take one step back and witness your thoughts and emotions as if they're just programming on a TV screen. And that way, like everything else, they eventually dissipate. No emotion lasts forever, no thought lasts forever, not even the good ones. So you just wait a sec and it goes away. And and the, the big thing about meditation and the specific meditation that I teach first is a focus meditation. So meditation is a general term like exercise. You know, it's one word for any number of different kinds of exercise. You do high intensity interval training, you do long distance running, you do weightlifting. So meditation is that general term. And the the first line meditation that I suggest people do is a focus meditation because that allows you to orient your mind towards what you want to do. And being able to focus is, I believe, the key skill of adulthood. And if you have a distracted mind, that's not going to be your friend. And that's not going to be that buffer like that, that hiking boot that protects you from the world. Whereas if you're able to bring your mind back to this central state of equanimity and calm through this focused meditation, you have this address in your brain for the eye of the storm, the center of the cyclone, where the world is swirling around, but you're in the middle. And right here, everything is cool right now. And there's never going to be a time that's not now. So you're going to be pretty much cool all the time. Yeah, I think there's a ton of material out there on meditation. Um, so if people want to get started, YouTube, there's lots of apps. Do you recommend the apps like a Headspace or something like that? Uh, I mean, there's a certain irony with recommending the using the most distracting device known to mankind in order to start meditating, but I don't care. Whichever gateway you want to get through, whatever your, uh, your gateway drug is, I'm cool with it. Uh, people have gotten really good results with Calm, just getting started, and Headspace, people like that. Uh, some of my friends have personally recommended Waking Up, the Sam Harris app. That's supposed to be very good. And there's this new app that uh, is offering a year free. It's called Balance. And a friend of mine, she is one of the meditation teachers in there. So that's pretty good. And then there's also Insight Timer. Insight Timer has a collection of hundreds, if not thousands of, of guided meditations. If people want to start with a guided meditation, that is totally okay too. Ultimately, you want you to just sit there and engage in the most equipment-free experience in the world, which is meditating. Just sit there and be and train your mind to do what you want it to do, whether it's focus, whether it's compassion meditation, uh, whether it's an open awareness meditation. Those are the three that I teach. I have some follow-up questions on meditation, but I will leave that for another episode because I feel like we could probably spend 45 minutes on meditation to get people there. And I want to keep the pace on this since we do have a last pillar here, which is physical fitness. Yeah. Staying in shape is so freaking hard, man. Um, it is yeah. tough to go and get motivated week in, week out to do something. So um, what do you do for physical fitness and how do you stay motivated? Yeah, I, I totally hear you. And I'm a lifelong athlete. And this past year was a bit uh, challenging for me because I couldn't go to my gym. And so much of everything that we do is easier when we do it in groups, especially if you do it in synchrony. So uh, there's a great book called The Joy of Movement by Kelly McGonigal out of Stanford. And it's fantastic. It's, you know, she has been teaching uh, aerobics and yoga since she was like a kid almost right she's been doing yoga aerobics since she was seven and in addition to being a, a lecturer 
she teaches these exercise classes on the side. So uh, she's speaking not just from the scientific point of view, but from a practical point of view. And uh, the thing that makes it easier is to do it with other people. Once again, the whole pro-sociality. And there's also a great book by Dan Lieberman that came out in the past few months. Uh, it's called Exercise. Why something that we did not evolve to do is uh, rewarding and helpful. And if you think about it, we didn't really evolve to exercise. It just wasn't part of the problem because you're running around chasing antelope for five hours a day or climbing trees trying to get honey or digging up tubers or making a fire. So you're engaging, you know, the, the Dan Lieberman went and studied the Hadza and the Hadza are doing, you know, two to three hours of vigorous activity and another two hours of mild activity per day, which is very different from your average, average dex jockey. So those guys, they don't have gyms. And once they're done with their work, they just sit and they do absolutely nothing. You just sit because we're designed to conserve energy. But since we do have these sedentary lifestyles, we have to, once again, engineer this into our lives. So um, I, I just kind of made myself exercise during the pandemic, not nearly at the same level that I did before, uh, but I had a schedule. And every other day I would run and every in between I would do my little rubber band exercises and push-ups and stuff like that. A very simple circuit, not even 20 minutes a day, but you know, just do that and just get that done. Now that the gyms are open again, I'm going back to my classes. There's people there, there's faces, there's interaction. It's a lot easier. Also for me, it's a class. So it goes from say eight to nine this morning. And if you don't show up, it doesn't happen. You can't just, so I feel like that structure and doing it with people helps a lot. And that's probably why all these little little studios, these little boxes are so popular because it's a group class, you're moving together and there's a big component of that synchrony of movement and camaraderie that adds a little bit of dopamine juice and happy juice and oxytocin to the whole mix, which makes the whole thing much more palatable. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, group classes are a great idea. I, I And then it almost ties in with the robust relationship piece to it. You can stack the two together. You can get your physical fitness totally. while also um, building these relationships and you know taking these classes is awesome. But you don't have to go out and spend $150 on a you know membership to a gym either. You could just find somebody to run with you every day or to yeah. you know find a pickup soccer group or something like that. Um, so it might take a little bit more work, but finding a group, building a community, having a set schedule week in, week out on around that activity, I think is great ideas to kind of build in this physical fitness or engineer in this physical fitness piece and have a little bit of fun while you're doing it. Yeah, or you can just join an exercise cult like CrossFit. Boom. <laughs> Dr. Ali Benazir, man, you are a fascinating guy. I am so glad that you put a lot of thought into the things that you research. It's been a blast um, getting to know you through my research over the last week. If people want to connect with you, you um, want to learn more about the five pillars of human thriving, they can check out your website, happinessengineering.com. You are super active on Clubhouse as well. I've um, t jumped into a few of your rooms and listened to you speak. I can't remember your handle, and I know they can't just search your name. So what is your, how can they find you on Clubhouse again? Yeah, it's kind of weird. If you search my name, it does not turn up. But uh, the handle is Dr. Ali B. So Dralib, D-R-A-L-I-B. Um, Dr. Ali B will find me. If not, um, 
you can always email Dr. Ali at happinessengineering.com. That's probably the easiest way to find me. Cool. Last question um, for yeah, you. Yeah, and if I ever have a question about myself, I'll just call you because apparently you've done far more research about me than I have. So this is great. <laughs> no, no, no. It's been it's been my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. So my final question for you, Ali. If you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors, what oh, topic wow. what topic would you cover that isn't normally covered in the classroom? What would you teach and why would you teach it? Well, that's, that's a fantastic question uh, because that's basically what I'm teaching all the time. I'm like, I'm teaching what is missing from our so-called education. So uh, this would be my class. If it's 16 weeks, wow, okay, then I can do two separate modules. I'll do the happiness engineering first, and then I'll do the public speaking and persuasion module second, because uh, it's good to be happy, but it's also good to have power. And I want smart, well-meaning people to actually take hold of their power and to use it for good. And you don't do it by uh, being quiet. You don't do it by not knowing how to disseminate your ideas. You do it by being a good advocate for yourself. Um, so those, those, those would be the two big modules. Love it. Ali, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for giving me so much of your time. Um, and I'm looking forward to following you along in your journey. Good times, my friend. Thanks for reaching out. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation today, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified about new episodes. If you want to connect with me, send me a message on Instagram. I'm at Justin Lee Peters. You can find show notes with links to everything we discussed today at justinpeters.co. This episode was produced by Gabby Dimeke. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Thanks for tuning in.